all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. It is late at night. Yes, it is. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, and Reddit at All Bad Things Pod. Email. Well, okay, never mind. Uh, all Bad Things Pod. Email us all bad things pod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, Discord, and subreddit. That's where I should have added Reddit. Do all of those things. Mm hmm. And what are you what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> so we are recording this after you are done with work, aren't yep, we? We are. And you are done with work. I am on second shift at yes. the moment. <laughs> it's past midnight. So by the time I get by the time I get home it's just a wee past midnight. And by we I mean like literally like five after. Yeah, that's that's fair. So Yes. And I go to bed at ten or ten thirty, so <laughs> Yes. <clears throat> and I'm still dealing with the cough. Pardon that um but i am still on cough medicine <laughs> and i am drinking joyba raspberry dragon fruit black tea bubble tea yummy it has popping boba lightly flavored bubbles that pop when you bite them i'm a long time oh, bubble tea okay. fan that sounds like fun i am i am yes. having my uh national local beer <laughs> Because it is a Friday night. Well, no, it's technically a Saturday now. <laughs> it is very early, very, very early Saturday morning. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's a Friday night for me. So. Yes. Ah, oh, so yeah. <laughs> I was I was just uh, in bed, so I'm still coming round. But uh, um, how, how? No, mm-hmm. I won't do it. What? I won't do it. It's mean. Okay. To talk about our bet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we know how that turned out, don't we? Yes, white lightning is safe. For now. <laughs> Ooh, pop, popping boba, very fun. There you go. But yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I kind of saw... Speaking of disasters, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, kind of saw it coming. I you wasn't, did, you weren't I, I very wasn't, I was not very con- No, I was not very confident that day. I was like, man, if our offense gets off to a slow start and Cincinnati's doesn't, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's that's pretty much going to be how it and that's how it played out mm. so yep bye bye bills for this season or this postseason anyway. for probably many seasons to come yeah i'm yep. back i'm back on the uh <laughs> <laughs> you're back in the uh, morose <laughs> yeah uh but on, on the other hand though i this is the comparison i make mm-hmm. right now like the Buffalo Bills are in early, um, early to mid two thousands Indianapolis Colts territory where they had Peyton Manning. He does all these amazing things during the regular season, and they just can't get it done in the postseason. Mm-hmm. He did not win a Super Bowl until his ninth season. Wow. Okay. Oh dear. So that his means brother. A few more years. His brother won his first two. Manning in, the lesser in, in eight seasons. <laughs> So little little brother mm-hmm. won won two Super Bowls in the amount of seasons before it took Peyton to win one. Well, <laughs> but yeah, that's where we are now. It's like, okay, we've got this top five quarterback. Mm-hmm. He does all these amazing things in the regular season, 
But that's the third straight year we've gotten ousted in week 20. Mm. We have not made it past week 20. So you've never made it to an AFC championship. No, we did two years ago when there was only uh, 16 regular season games. Now there's 17. Oh, okay. So yes. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Gotcha. Same game of the year. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Same week of the year, but now the game is one less. Right. Now week 20 is the divisional mm-hmm. playoff instead of the championship round. Gotcha. But yeah, for three straight years, we've gotten ousted in week 20. And that, that 13 seconds, <coughs> right. it just makes it bigger every year because that was, we all knew how bad we blew that one last year. Mm. But anyway... Let's let's talk about a disaster. <laughs> a non a non sports related disaster, like my team. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm pretty excited about this one. I finally did some research. So this is not a listener script for the first time in several weeks. Um or a script that because Sarah did a script too. <coughs> <laughs> and if you are, if you want me to pick up reading at some point, just tell me. I appreciate that, but I would like to talk nope. about this one. Okay. Mm. So, I have a whole introduction for this one that we'll get to in a minute. But this is part one. This is a two-parter. Part one of the Marielle Boatlift. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm calling part one... Las Revoluciones. Hmm. The Revolutionaries. Well, I mean, you grew up in an area where this is I sure, I have very, a connection, yes, do I not? Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. You have likely run into some people who were on that those, those boats. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. So, in 1980, the lives of approximately 125,000 Cuban people... Is that many? Yeah. Oh, my God. Not to mention their friends, family... The entirety of South Florida, let alone the United States, were permanently altered when an ill-conceived sudden mass migration was allowed with little regard for those actually emigrating. Sources are Britannica, Domingo Alfonso, who I'll get to in a second, Magellan TV, and Wikipedia. Mm. So, I'm going to read this. Because I'll comment on it, but I wrote this at a specific time. So, I am writing this preface on Christmas Day 2022. I'm not sure when I'll finish the script or how long it will be, so roughly a month. But I have to give credit where it's due for the inspiration of this particular topic. I'm currently in Miami spending Christmas away from David and the rest of my family, which isn't my favorite thing ever. However, I know it's important because I'm here to help out my grandmother because my grandfather died on December 22nd. What I will say is that in the 24 hours I've spent here so far, I've met a fascinating little cast of characters at my grandmother's independent living facility. So first off, shout out, (coughs) excuse me, shout out to the palace in Miami. It really is called that. It really is called the palace. And it looks like it's called the palace. Which lives up to, oh, there we go. Which lives up to its name in providing a pretty amazing and caring environment for their residents. Yes, the residents definitely pay for it, and my grandmother is very privileged to live there. And second, shout out to the residents themselves. Yesterday, so this was on Christmas Eve, I met Doris, who talked about how she saw the Rat Pack in Vegas literally back in the day in the late 1940s and early 50s. That's awesome. I know. And this morning, I learned how to play Rummy Cube with 
Edith, Francis, Gloria, and Marlene. <laughs> Sounds about right. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Edith, Francis, Gloria, and Marlene. Marlene. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And tonight, I met the inspiration of this topic, Domingo Alfonso. Uh-huh. Domingo sat down at the table with me, my grandmother, and Edith. So the um, oh oh, oh here we go. I was see I'm I'm anticipating my own writing. There you go. Oh, pardon me. At their table, the old people get pretty territorial. <laughs> yeah, it's mean girls all over. It is like, a little it, bit. It, 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 it never, totally is. That that instinct never leaves anybody. I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, so Domingo was um. Probably like in his late 70s or something. Um, Apparently his wife was at... So the palace has an independent living facility, but then also like a a assisted living facility on the same campus and a rehab center. And his wife Yeah, is I mean, I haven't in... been there, but I've seen pictures. It looks fucking gigantic. Oh, it's huge. And yeah. it's beautiful. It's, uh, yeah. <clears throat> and the staff is really great. Yeah. To be fair, the staff is very great. Um, but his wife, he lives in the um, the Palace Suites, which is, which is the um, independent living facility. And his wife is in the assisted living facility. So just next door. And he's like this older gentleman, like slick back very thinning hair and um like such a typical cuban guy wearing a guayabera shirt and everything like very very domingo alfonso like it just fits <laughs> it just fits him anyway domingo was so he sat down and talked with us he was an engineer with florida power and light or fpnl for years and then he told me about how he was at university when Fidel Castro came into power over New Year's Jesus, Eve, nineteen fifty-eight, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so I guess I could, if he was in, you know, yeah, he's probably in his early eighties then. Yeah. Yeah, that would put him in his early eighties. Um, we were he, talking about this on the phone. Yes. Yeah. He said he remembered not being too bothered by Castro's coup. He was like, whatever, switch from one di- dictator to another, which we'll get into. Um. Uh, then he said that Castro went on to promise the people of Cuba that he was not a communist and would make everything great for everyone. To which Domingo said, watch out for ev- anyone who says they'll make everything great for everyone. <laughs> like, uh, make America great again. Yeah. Hmm. At his last rally, it was funny because he said, make America, um, uh, what did he say? It was two G's, though. Did he fuck up his own yes, but saying? It, it was make America this and great again, so it wound up, oh, it wound up okay. being it wound up being Magaga. Magaga. <laughs> Radio Magaga. Yes. Jeez. Um. So, <clears throat> Domingo said that his uncle didn't buy Castro's line and brought over the whole family to Miami in 1960. Not a not a bad move. It's this is a this this is such an interesting story. Yeah, because it went places I didn't expect. So we'll talk about some of this. This is a nuanced story. Oh, of of course. So my grandmother asked Domingo a question about the Mariel boatlift, and Domingo said, and I quote directly, "What a disaster!" Mm. As soon as he said disaster, I was like, "Bingo." 
You're like Domingo. Let me let me get out my stenographer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> let me let me get out my my voice memo app <laughs> with, with your your shoulder straps, mm-hmm. cassette recorder with the with the microphone, mm-hmm. like talking to this. Exactly. And you'd have to you'd have to punch down on it every now and then to get the cassette. To right. <laughs> <laughs> but that would work. Violence yeah. and technology worked with cassette tapes. There you go. So let's strap in, friends, and learn what happens when what seems like a good thing and a good idea is very, very poorly handled, leading to plenty of bad feelings between a whole lot of people. So, uh, we would literally be here all night talking about Cuba if we were to go. (laughs) There's a lot to talk about. (laughs) There's so much to talk about. And in part, that's why I'm splitting the script into two parts, because... This is going to be all the background, and we will get into the boat lift next week. But this is required for context, I feel, anyway. Um, And this isn't just a story about Cuba. Obviously, it's the bulk of it, but it's about how Cuba has interacted with the rest of the world, and especially the United States. Well, uh, interaction is a loose term when it, it comes to... It is a very broad States. term. Yeah. Yes, and we will get to that. Yeah. So, as with any country, Cuba had plenty of backstory prior to its colonization. At the risk of glossing over a long and complex history, suffice it to say, yes, there were indigenous peoples in Cuba, just like almost everywhere else in what is now known as North America. Right. And, um, in, this, and in this hemisphere, too. Oh, yeah. Um, (coughs) specifically by around 4,000 BCE, the island was inhabited by people, including the hunter-gatherer Juanahatabe and Siboni peoples. By 1492, (laughs) when the fucking idiot Christopher Columbus did all his bullshit colonizing. Well, I mean, he wasn't an idiot. I mean, he did, like, make it to where he thought he said he was going to go, like, it he yeah. made it to a place. Yeah. Right. And mistook it for being another place. Hey, I mean, but nobody else on his side of the world had been there before. So he could, you know. So he was successful at actually finding land, which nobody else was coming from where he was coming from. The problem is that he was Christopher Columbus. That's and, the problem. And just decided to be like, well, this is mine now. And No, I claim it for... And the people who already lived there had no clue what he was saying. Right. And also, even if they did, if they spoke back, how would he know what right. they were saying? Because literally, these two uh, people groups uh-huh. had been separated by like a thousand years. And now, yeah. all of a sudden, they're together well, again. Well, even more. <coughs> um, uh, people were inhabiting Cuba by 4,000 BCE. Yeah, so. that's that's not surprising. Yeah. And it's I mean, violent. It's, I mean, and it's, and it's not that far from this continent. So it, it, 90 miles from Cuba, yeah, as they say. I mean, it makes sense that... An island that mm-hmm. close to a lot of land would also have a lot of settlers. Right. Mm-hmm. So, at that time when Columbus, uh, quote, discovered America, the majority of the inhabitants of Cuba were the Taino people, um, also known as the Arawakan Indians, who were also the majority inhabitants of the whole Caribbean, the major people group of that area. Columbus claimed Cuba for Spain and named it Ila Juana, after Prince John, the son of King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella I of Castile. So Spanish colony forced the Taino 
people into a form of feudalism. Sure. And within about a century, thanks yeah. to their subjugation, smallpox and the measles, uh, like the Taino people were basically wiped out of Cuba by then. We talked about Cocolizzi way back. <coughs> <coughs> I sound like I'm smoking. Don't you do. You sound, like, you sound like me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, even uh, a recent example is uh, people shedding their COVID vaccine. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> But no, back in this time, people were actually, yeah, they were shedding diseases onto each other. because Well, they, it was just that the Europeans were bringing over diseases right. that they were both people in, of the Americas, was now the Americas, right. had not. They were both in two different climates, mm-hmm. and they were both just how they're generationally exposed mm-hmm. to different things. Right. And mm-hmm. then those different things hadn't met until then, and yep. it was like, okay, we mm-hmm. got a problem. Mm-hmm. Um... So enslaved people were brought to Cuba over the centuries to work the land, especially Cuba's most well-known crop. Uh, is it uh, sugar? Yeah, sugar yeah. cane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is very well suited to growing in Cuba. I, I'm glad you came up with that. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I, at first I was going to say cocaine, but I was like, no, we're not talking about... <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> We're not talking about South America. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking about, no, but no. Uh, and uh, I think they were big into textiles, too, if I'm not mistaken. Tobacco and sugarcane were yeah. the biggest, but um, I'm sure there were textiles. Yeah. The New Republic of Cuba. Oh, sorry. I skipped an entire paragraph. <laughs> we're not to the Republic of Cuba yet. Okay. Independence movements began in earnest, and I'm going to. I, ha- I must stop there to give due deference to my grandfather and say, poor Ernest. <laughs> he would always say that. Something was in Ernest. Poor Ernest. Anyway. Um, in Cuba in the late 19th century, first by Carlos Manuel de Cispedes in 1868. That was like a long, it lasted a decade, a long movement for independence, but it did not lead to independence. But there were some concessions from the Spanish, so I mean, our, it loosened the grip a little bit. Our war for independence lasted almost eight years. So, <coughs> oh, yes. War, this wars is, this wars is for not independence all, are not short. No, this is not at all unusual. Um, and a second uprising in 1879, known as the Little War, was led by Calizo Garcia. Didn't gain much traction. Didn't result in independence. But then, <coughs> in 1895... Cuban Revolutionary Party leader Jose Marti presented the Manifesto of Monte Cristi, which outlined how Cuba's next war for independence was going down. Uh, Marti was killed during the war a few months later. He became like kind of a national icon. But it raged on until July 17th, 1898, when Spain relented. Cuba formally gained its recognized independence later that year when the United States and Spain signed the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Spanish-American War, which was going on at that time. Yeah, okay. Good times. (laughs) That plays into a lot of economics, too, which we won't get into, I'm sure. Let's just just put it this way. Uh, There were a lot of businesses on the East Coast that had business ties to Cuba, that we're still paying paying for and and oh we're getting into oh, some of that okay we're okay. getting into some of that all right we're not digging uber deep sure. because then this would be a six part script yes. right yeah but we are going to touch on some of that okay. so 
So the New Republic of Cuba had some issues from the start, not exactly to be unexpected in the early days of a newly independent nation, of course. The United States kept one hand firmly in the Cuban cookie jar, as it were, um, and that was a tactic it would not give up on anytime soon. Uh, not to, not even to this day. Well, uh, the first presidential election in 1906 in Cuba ended with an armed revolt, <laughs> which resulted... <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, of course, what would happen except, hey, the United States is like, well, fine, we'll install this guy as the governor. Sure. Like they're like, which one are we gonna fund? Like yeah. the, the the guys trying to take over, or the guys trying to stay in power. Yeah. Oh, the guys trying to take over because then we can put them on a leash too. If there's something that the United States is extremely good at, it's not minding its own goddamn business. I'll tell true. you that. In 1908, the first elected president, Jose Miguel Gomez, took office. As the decades passed, Cuba gained a higher profile in the international community, primarily for its tourism. And along with its tourism came a boom in sex work and gambling. Oh, fuck yeah. Essentially. And, and mob activity. Yes. Essentially, Cuba was Vegas before Vegas was Vegas. It, kind of, yes. Uh-huh. Well, it was, uh, it was like the international Vegas for a little while. Well, and think about it. When did, when Cuba was shut to the U.S. circa, like, late 50s, early mm-hmm. 60s. What started growing at that time? Las Vegas. There we go. It was already on the rise, but then it went mm-hmm. boom. Because that's where you could go. Mm-hmm. The All stop- the mobsters were like, <coughs> oh, we've got, that's right, we've got one of these over there. We're working on it, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. The stock market crash of 1929... Also led to many economic and political woes in Cuba, sure. resulting in the first, <laughs> the first <laughs> Cuban presidential exile, as Gerardo Machado no, fled. Not the last. <laughs> no, fled the country after a violent uprising by student protesters calling themselves the Generation of 1930. I like it. Carlos Manuel de Céspedes y Quesada was placed in power. Um, that. Is the same name okay. as the person earlier. I didn't know that while I was writing it. No? Did I get okay. the name? I either got the names mixed up or it's another Carl, Carlos Manuel de Cespedes. Except he's E. Quesada. Anyway, he was placed in power. <laughs> <coughs> Only to be overthrown three years later. By hey, leader. That's a, good, that's a good run. Three years. Yeah, right? I mean, the, the, the very first president didn't last a day. Right. <laughs> By leader, and this is a big name in Cuba, Fulgencio Batista. So it was into this world. Like, we're t- now this is into, uh, you know, stock market crash of 1929. Uh, the uprising. Uh-huh. One of the most famous and divisive world leaders of the 20th century was born. Fidel Alejandro Castro Ruz was born in southeastern Cuba on August 13th, 1926. 26, okay. To Angel Maria Bautista Castro y Argis and Lina Ruz Gonzalez. So he lived to be close to 90. I think he what died in 2016, right? Or oh, 17? Thought, oh, Fidel. I haven't finished oh. next week's script, oh, okay. so I don't yeah. <laughs> remember. It wasn't that long ago. Right. Like we were in Winston, or... we were in Winston, Winston <coughs> Salem when he died. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So it would have been within the past like yeah. six years. I think or it something. was like 15 or 16. Yeah. This is Fidel oh, in the middle. Look at, look at him. Little Fidel. He was born to be a tyrant. He, I mean, he does look like a little Lord Flauntleroy in he that. He kind of looks like, um, like you could put that doll in, um, like this person as a doll, like in a horror movie. <laughs> like that's kinda, actually, all three of them. Well, <laughs> little kids back in the day, they made them pose weird, and yeah. they always looked very well, they, adult. They made them pose with, with their parents if they were dead. That's true, too. <laughs> the Victorian death we're, portraits. And we're not, we're not joking no, about that. No, no. Oh, I know. I know they're dead. <laughs> Good job! And she pelts me with Joy. a koozie. Anyway. Aubrey will get that reference. Mm-hmm. On our ghost tour on her birthday. Mm-hmm. Her birthday's coming up. Yeah. Happy birthday. That's right. Ooh, big 4-0, too. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Angel, uh, Fidel's father, was from Spain. So, he came to Cuba first as a soldier during the second or successful revolution for Cuban independence, he went back to Spain after the Spanish-American War, but decided to come back to Cuba and make his home there. Um, Angel worked his way up in the sugar game, sugarcane game, sugarcane game, working his way out from under his employer, the United Fruit Company, uh, to own his own sugar plantation, which then supplied sugar to the United Fruit Company. <laughs> But he worked his way up much higher as something of kind of like a mini land baron in the area. He wheeled and dealed with the local politicians to keep his business successful. As most successful people did. As capitalists do. Mm -hmm. Angel's first marriage resulted in five children. But he soon fell into a behavior we've seen in many powerful men being attracted to other children. Namely, in this instance... One of his maids, 15-year-old Lina Ruz Gonzalez. Uh, For context, Angel was 42. Jeez, that's... Creepy, creepy, creepy. I know that shit happened a a lot more back then. Still fucking creepy. I'm sorry. It is. Yeah. So Angel and Lina had six children together. And Lina had a son born by a farmhand during her relationship with Angel... So they had like a cheaper by the dozen, uh, yours, mine, and ours situation. With yeah, like I was a gonna dozen say he's children. got he's got a dozen now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in some in some form or fashion. Now, yes. Angel and Lena did eventually get married in 1943, which is when Fidel was 17. So anyway, one of these children was, of course, Fidel Alejandro, and another was the brother who would who would become known as Fidel's right hand man and current leader of Cuba, Raúl. Oh. Raul Castro. I thought his name was Billy. Billy I'm Castro. <laughs> but it's a great name, though. Billy, Billy Castro. Castro. William Castro. <laughs> That's what he'd call himself if he had come to the United States to play baseball. He'd right. call himself Billy, Billy Castro. Castro. Yeah. Yeah. Fidel and Raul, along with their full siblings, were raised with their half-siblings, but were generally seen as less than their father's first brood of kids, since their mother was working class, Right. The dad was a upper class elitist land baron. Mom yeah. was a maid. Yeah. Fidel was <laughs> still. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, yeah, we can have all these children together, but Jesus. you're still gonna clean everything up, right? Fidel would later cite this experience as part of his mission against the bourgeoisie for the proletariat 
Though it's not entirely fair to characterize him as working class. Because yeah. he was born into privilege because of yeah. his father, but he was socially kind of ostracized, at least to an extent, because of his mother. Yeah, but financially, he's in way better shape than a lot of people. So... Well, they're sad. Yeah. For one, Fidel did not suffer from a lack of education. Or food, or, you know... Right, you know, no, no, of course, yeah. but we're talking about his education. Sure. Specifically. He received tutoring as a youngster... Then was sent to Catholic boarding school through high school. Um, despite eventually being known for his political savvy and his, you know, views on social issues, he wasn't really into academics all that much as a kid. He was a sporty McSporter person. Um, he was good in track and field, team sports, and ping pong. Or hey. table tennis. Yeah. At age 19... <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> this must be so fun to listen to. Fidel enrolled in the Belen Preparatory School, a private Jesuit school in Havana. Um, so the Jesuits are apparently, at least according to this article I read, um, known for very like rigid military-like structure. Sure. Um, As it, most religious sects are. Yeah, because like the nuns and mm-hmm. yeah, I get I get that. Um, And that's something that later Castro would say was a big influence on his life. He said, quote, they influenced my sense of justice, end quote. So very Mm. militaristic, right? He also became more socially aware during this time, being drawn to the philosophy of Hispanidad, the idea that the historical and cultural Spanish way of life was superior to that of the predominant Western way of the Anglo-Saxons. That's going to rub some... uh... (laughs) That's going to rub ruffle some feathers. Merka! <laughs> Merka! Yeah. There's a certain somebody that's not going to put up with that statement. That's for damn sure. There's a certain millions and millions of somebody's who won't put up with that statement. So this led to him cementing his anti-imperialist views, along with his sense of injustice and in how he's treated as a child compared to his half-siblings. As his education continued, he did come to admire some of the United States' major figures, like Abraham Lincoln and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Lincoln, because he was president during um, abolition of slavery, and Roosevelt for his social programs for the working class, Mm -hmm. right? He instituted Social Security, for one. But he also saw the realities of American imperialism (laughs) and colonialism. (laughs) But we we know it didn't end there. So he was very wary of American hypocrisy. Yeah. Can't say we blame him. No, and this is where this, this, this is where it gets I mean, a little more nuanced, right? Well, I mean, he was on the right path. He he admired somebody who emancipated a, a race of people and also somebody who gave social programs to a whole group. So he was but somewhere, but the the somewhere yeah. is he lives on an island that has been invaded over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yep. That's 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 going to lead you down a dark path. Well, by the mid-1940s, Fulgencio Batista was the dominant figure in Cuban politics during Castro's lifetime. In 1940, Batista had implemented a new national constitution that was actually extremely progressive in many ways, including the right to labor and the right to health care. Huh? What? I know. (laughs) Communists! By 1944, Batista's successor, Ramon Garau San Martin, was president. 
1947, now a young law student, Fidel's philosophy began turning a bit more militant. He learned that he had a skill of organizing small gangs throughout his later school years, and he decided to start practicing his fledgling coup skills as he assisted in a failed attempt to invade the Dominican Republic. And wow, over- that's a, I know. That's, I know. Starting off strong. Yeah, and overthrow the dictator in power there, Rafael Trujillo. Yeah, you'd think you'd like take over like a mayor's office. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, no. Something something easy. Like, you know, the mayor of a of a town of like five hundred people. You know, you no, go for you go for that go one. To another first. Country no, over. We're just, we're just mm-hmm. gonna try to take over another country. Yep. All right. <laughs> Those guys were feeling pretty confident. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh he also joined riots in Bogota, Colombia in nineteen forty eight. Now, that same year, Carlos Prio Socarras became president, and his and Grau's successive presidencies had ushered in the post-war boom in Cuba, where they saw an overall increase in the standard of living, leading to a growing middle and upper class. Can't have that. Even as he worked on various revolutions, Castro did manage to finish his study in law, and he became an attorney. This is a picture of him around that time. Okay. Hmm. All right, so Fidel joined the Orthodoxos, also known as the Cuban People's Party, and he ran for the House of Representatives in 1952. Also running that year for president was former President Fulgencio Batista. The outcome of the election was not looking good for Batista, so he preempted it. He staged a military coup overthrew the Cuban government, and installed himself as president. So Batista's regime was no walk in the park. He was bad. He was very, very bad. He basically um, struck down the constitution that he himself had instituted. I was just going to say. I know. Very weird. He was like, yeah, (coughs) about that. About that Mm -hmm. constitution thing. We're done with it. Yeah. Um, Now, here's another interesting... I I give it, then I take it away. Right. Here's another interesting fun fact. Who do you, what uh, country do you think fully backed Batista? I'm going to guess it was us. Oh, what makes you say that? Because we always because back we're violent coups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we love that's our favorite thing to do. Yes, we're very good at that. We even had one of our own recently. Huh. <laughs> A little, little dry run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shall I get the bubbles down you for wanna, you? Do you want to try a bubble? Uh, no, here. You can have all the bubbles. Oh. <laughs> oh, they're they're jammed up in there. They are kind of. <laughs> this is making for fascinating podcasting. Yes, it is. Mm, okay. That is that was pretty damn good though. Did you like it? Yeah, I'll take. If next time you get one, get. get I have one. three more in there. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. Yay, um, yay me. <laughs> yay you. So, uh, yeah, it's it's um. You know, we we know how to back a puppet master in power. We're good at that. Sometimes yes. we just make one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Batista cracked down on basically all political rights of the Cuban people and put his power behind those who needed it the least. The wealthiest landowners who made their money in sugar. Batista's government was horribly corrupt, heavily mobbed up, and had an economy intrinsically linked with that of the United States. 
The U.S. owned huge amounts of Cuba's national resources, public utilities, and bank-held funds. All of this made life very difficult for the non-elite in Cuba, i.e. the 99%. So it's not hard to see why things were forced to change one way or the other. And I say the 99%, but you know what? It's not really because... Unlike the United States, there was a, there was a big middle class at the sure. time, but it was all about upward mobility. Sure. Except ignore all the people who aren't upwardly aren't able to be upward, upwardly mobile, right? Um. So it was just a matter of who was going to change things and when. So Fidel worked hard throughout Batista's reign to depose him. This included participating in a 1953 suicide attack that killed almost all of the 160 men participating and landed cast hundreds holy shit uh, they almost i think it was like 150 of them died or oh something God. castro survived but he it landed him in prison he was sentenced to 15 years he was granted amnesty in 1955 um which batista's government would probably later regret i was just gonna say mm-hmm. yeah that was not the right move he and his brother Raul went to Mexico and organized the Movimiento 26 de Julio, or the July 26th movement. Fidel, Raul, and another name, Che Guevara, were all involved in an armed expedition back to Cuba. Do you know, until I did this research, I thought Che Guevara was like active in Venezuela or something. But no, he was he was Argentinian. I don't but... know too much about him. But I, I thought he had, I thought he did have a Cuban connection. I guess this is it. He worked with Castro. Yeah. Full blown. I didn't know that until you just said it. But... Mm-hmm. Which is why I don't get why, you know, it's cool to be like, Che, but nobody's yeah, going Fidel. Well, I mean, yeah. I really, I don't know enough about Che Guevara to have an opinion. I'm with you. I'm with you. All I know is that <clears throat> Che Guevara is a highly controversial figure. Yes. And that's probably for a reason. Yes. Um, yes. Um, so they, they were all involved in an armed expedition back to Cuba. Again, most of the 81 men who participated were killed or captured, though the three now legendary leaders managed to escape. Fidel continued to grow his July 26th guerrilla army to about 800 strong throughout the late 1950s, despite heavy backing of the Batista regime by the United States. The U.S. supplied the country with what we make best, war machines and chemical weapons, like napalm. Chemical weapons? We supplied Cuba with napalm to fight Castro. Then again, back then we didn't know, well, we probably did and just didn't give a shit. This is uh, the same country that atom bombed Japan. uh, What's a little napalm? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, in March 1958, the U.S. began the first phase of its long-lasting trade embargo on Cuba, ceasing the sale of arms to the country. Yeah, here's the, just with American history here, although Mm -hmm. we're talking about Cuba, but obviously here's the link we just talked about. But, uh, man, the U.S. was highly involved in a lot of... (coughs) Coups, little mini wars, like all kinds of shit during the 1950s. We cannot keep our hands to ourselves. No. There was a lot of, uh, we, it was basically like a, a race, a race for colonialism between us and the USSR. Yes, that's, yeah. And it was just like, the more territories we can scoop up, <laughs> yeah. so let's scoop them up. Mm-hmm. Whether oh, and we'll those, get to whether, the USSR, too. Whether those people too. want it or not. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> yeah, we will get to the USSR, won't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we will. We're going to end the, with the USSR. The fucking world almost uh-huh. ended. That six, is literally where, 60 we're, years where ago. we're ending in this script. Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, despite being heavily outnumbered, Castro's army secured key victories in various battles against the Cuban army in 1958. This is about 800 guys fighting against an entire national army, just saying. A November election for president took place that year, despite Castro's threats around the time of the arms embargo that his army would kill anyone who voted. That's not good, by the way. Just just saying. No. Like, hey. No. None of this is good. (laughs) No, it's not. In the end, Che Guevara's leadership in the Battle of Santa Clara on December 31st, 1958, led to Batista fleeing the country for the Dominican Republic the next day, carrying on him $300,000, which is roughly $3 million today. He oh, cash really? money. United States dollars, this man. Fled his own country with $3 million bucks. Those are always valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Cuban revolutionaries, including, of course, Fidel Castro, were the men of the hour, having led a force of 800 guerrilla soldiers to defeat the entire Cuban army of 30,000 people in a real-life David and Goliath story. The fuck? Like, I... I know. I did not go into all the little battles sure. and stuff well, and how yeah, it worked, because but... That would be a different... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Once Batista left, the presidential office and cabinet were literally sitting there empty. The first person to get to the presidential palace was General... Eugenio Cantillo, who tried to form some version of order, like cobble together, like, like some like the, old guard. Like the guy in the Viking hat that, that stormed <laughs> our capital. Like, like <laughs> he was just like, hey, the seat's open. I'm just going to sit up here and, you know. <coughs> well, Cantillo didn't actually install himself. He installed Carlos Piedra, a Supreme Court judge, as the new president. Um, that lasted literally one day. <laughs> Before Castro installed his own president, Manuel Orutio Leo, a former presidential candidate who had been in exile in Venezuela. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, why not? Uh, Fidel decided to call himself the representative of the rebel armed forces of the presidency. And for all his talk about, like, being for the people, he set up his new office. Didn't mean it. Well, he set up his new office at the Hilton Hotel in Havana. Well, why not? Yeah. Now, here's where it gets... I was fascinated by this, and I should have... um, I should have pulled this up earlier, but I'll do it now. Um, So, this has all gone down, obviously, like, on a world stage, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, everybody is aware that this has happened. Right. So, um... Especially mobsters. Well, so, Castro... (laughs) Was like, well, you know, we need to be legitimized. So he went, or he did, essentially a press tour. A charm offensive, they called it. To try and gain legitimacy with world leaders and media. Hey, not the worst move. And I'm just going to play the very beginning of this because I find this fucking fascinating. The audio's pretty bad. Um, But... If you just Google, if you look on YouTube for Ed Sullivan Fidel Castro, wow, you can find this beauty from very early 1959. Ed Sullivan show, huh? 
Freedom is everybody's business. And as a newspaper, I flew down to Cuba for this exclusive interview with Fidel Castro. Finally met him three hours by car beyond Havana at Matanza. January 11th, took place in a forest of Tommy Gun at 2 a.m. And I asked these questions. You know, Batista propagandists all through our country and through the world always pictured your army not as a, a wonderful group of revolutionary youngsters who wanted to, to make corrections. They said your army was communist and that you were, you were communist. <laughs> I'm going to stop it there because it's just, it's really hard to hear. <coughs> you can watch the whole thing. But yes, Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan. Interviewed Fidel flew Castro. Flew down to Cuba. In Cuba. Met in- with Fidel Castro in his classic, like, army. Oh, here's the. Oh, the look that he adopted and never gave up. Exactly. Yeah. The revolutionary, like, yeah. the cap, the fatigue. Oh, the fatigues. Yeah. yeah. He never, he, you've never seen a picture of him, like, without fatigues on. He wasn't a suit wearer, that's for sure. No. Um, like, literally sitting with him and, like, guerrilla armies going, so, they but, say you're communist. But. <laughs> you want to talk about gaining legitimacy. Uh-huh. What is a bigger fucking way to gain legitimacy? The, uh, the Ed Sullivan Show, mm-hmm. for sure, is probably one of the biggest television shows in America at the time. Oh, absolutely. And if it's one of the biggest television shows in America at the time, it's one of the biggest the television world. shows in the world Look, at the time. Look, I, I am not saying... I think this was oh, very no, no, no. smart on it, Castro's it, yes. side. That's, that's, it's that's part bizarre. Of the, that's part of the problem. Because other people wind up giving him legitimacy. Well, and what it is, is it's and, very bizarre. Yes. It's That's I. I was crazy. like, I'm sorry, Ed Sullivan interviewed Fidel <laughs> Castro in Cuba. In Cuba, like it would have been like something else if like he just wound Less up in... less than two weeks after the revolution. Yeah. Like, oh my god. It's like, did anybody take that into account during the Bay of Pigs? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get to that. Like, like, like Ed, did you see anything while you were down there? Like a missile silo, <laughs> something, gorillas. <laughs> I mean, gorillas as like an army, not as... Gorillas. 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 And not like the band, gorillas. Yes, not them either. Castro became the Cuban... Oh, fuck. I know. Is Isn't it bizarre? Nuts. I didn't know about no, that I, I, at all. I've known like none of this. This is fascinating. Isn't it? Isn't it? I thought this was so interesting. So Castro became the Cuban prime minister in mid-February. I, I mean, he was pulling the strings yeah, to all of this. Yeah, it's like, but now he's, he's prime like, minister, I'll right? I'll take the title now. Well, one of the titles. He's so- still not yeah. president. Yeah. He actually stayed, quote, prime minister until 1976. Okay. Then he was president. Yeah. Um, so uh, he started touring the world for allyship at that point. Then U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower would not meet with him. So instead, he shuffled along his VP, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon <laughs> to meet with him. I did know Nixon had met with Castro. Mm. Yeah. Okay. See, it's just another bizarre. And it's and it and talk about more legitimacy. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. It's the vice president of the United States. Apparently, Castro instantly disliked Nixon. So at least the man had some good judgment. Yeah. <laughs> in that. that seemed to be everybody's uh <clears throat> <laughs> that seemed to be everybody's experience. He wasn't experience an inherently likable person, no. was he? No. Mm-mm. He was a person who would get what he wanted at no matter what. And yeah, those geez. aren't those aren't very likable people. No. We all, like as regular humans, have like limits. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those who don't are very scary those and who horrible don't, people. Those who don't uh, 
go come into power. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, exactly. They do. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, Castro was also quickly overtaking Urrutia in any version of actual power, that's the president, being the one largely responsible for instituting new national policies like steep pay cuts for public officials, mm. which Urrutia was none mm. too happy about. He didn't want to take a pay cut. I wonder why. Eventually, Castro himself fomented the outcry against Urrutia's presidency, leading to the president's resignation. Instead of stepping into the role himself, Castro instead appointed Osvaldo, Osvaldo Dorticos. In fact, as I said, Castro remained in his role as prime minister until 1976, when he became president. <laughs> so very early in Castro's regime, as I mentioned, there was a fair-ish amount of acceptance of Castro by the U.S., culturally at least. Sure. Politically, initially. Well, there's obviously a legitimacy. Well, he's shaking hands. He's shaking hands with the vice president, and he's had he's Ed Sullivan has flown to Cuba to interview him in the middle of the night. That's the amazing part. Yes. Like yes, (laughs) I know. It's pretty wild. Exactly. Um, Eisenhower officially accepted Castro's government, and Castro encouraged that. By hedging around identifying as a communist, socialist, or Marxist. He initially was very like, no, 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 about that. I like sugar cane. (laughs) But it did not take long for relations between the two countries to go downhill. So as we talked about, the U.S. had a very, very significant holding in Cuba's agriculture and industry. Well, by the summer of 1959, Castro started nationalizing plantations owned by U.S. interests and confiscating property from foreign landowners, including, of course, those from the United States. And he also nationalized the sugar and oil refining industries. What do you think the U.S. thought about that? Oh, we we fucking know what they thought about that. What did the USSR think about that? That's the better question. (sighs) So, now, this is where things got really weird for me, because here's the thing. Castro, we talked about Castro, we talked about Guevara. These are complex moral and ethical and social, sociopolitical figures. Uh, I mean, complex, complex, complex to a degree. Complex and fraught, because here's the thing. In so, their in their in their actual <coughs> in their upbringing and actual makeup, yes, how they rose to power, not so much. I mean, it's, it's pretty much it's a power play, you know. I mean, Castro was smarter about it because he was like, I can put this guy here, this guy here, and knowing that a couple of years down the road, I can take all three of those guys out, and nobody's even. Well, here's here's let me put it this way. So, I I grew up in South Florida. Mm-hmm. So I will probably never be able to say, like, even bring myself to say, Castro wasn't all bad. Because, <laughs> right. I'll tell you, because literally everyone was anti-Castro. Cru- I was going to say, you might get crucified for that. <laughs> the whole reason people were in Miami is because they hated Castro, right? right. So uh, it, he was a monster. That was what I grew up around. Was sure. culturally Castro is a monster, but it's worth discussing. Not to lionize the man in any way, shape, or form, 
but just to kind of show some of the complexities of this situation. Well, if you show those complexities, that means you're a communist. <laughs> but this is this is more nuanced, and even in ways that I'm like, oh shit, if I think back on who I heard all that from, like, oh, com- um, uh, Castro's a monster and all that, I'm like, this kind of tracks. Castro expanded education, nationalized healthcare, opening clinics, especially in rural areas, implemented universal childhood vaccinations and improved infrastructure. Now we can Here's a, here's We can, a, we oh, can argue mm-hmm. all day the quality of any of those things, sure. right? Or the manner in which they were carried out. Um but there were some real measured improvements. For example, because of the health initiatives and the universal vaccination for children, the infant mortality rate plummeted in Cuba. It's still better than ours. I do, that does not surprise me. Yeah, I, I was just listening to a segment on that the other day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still better than ours. <laughs> so, it, Castro's the, the, the really weird and difficult thing to contend with is that a lot of Castro's policies were popular with a large, if not majority, of the population of Cuba. That population were students, working class people, the working poor, indigent people, people who sure. were struggling. The, these were pot net positives for them, right. right? The people who, quote, suffered the most or saw the biggest consequences were the middle and upper classes, the socially mobile and the socially elite. Especially the upper class. Especially the elite. Now, when I say middle class, I just mean not struggling, right? right? Like on the way up, on the rise. Upper middle class. Yes. So here's here's my proposal. This is the only thing Castro got wrong in his... his... The dictator part? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> he could have gotten away with most of this if he had just worn a suit. Oh, yeah. I mean... That's basically what the United States has done for... Well, uh, pre- present day, if I was uh-huh. going to teach crime, I would just be like this. Buy a three-piece suit. Mm-hmm. Buy two of them. And wear nothing but that. You'll be able to get away with whatever you want. The The interesting thing is by wearing fatigues, I think the whole point was for him... It was an it Im- was. Was image control of for him. Of course it was. It was an image to his own people. But, I'm one of you. But or remember, I'm the revolutionary. But he wasn't thinking, I'm going to have to have the U.S. on my side. And, yeah. you know, he should have rolled with, you know, the three-piece suit. But instead, he rolled with the fatigues. and like, One can't ha- can't could that. argue that he was being more authentic by not playing the role. Hey. Uh, yeah. I, I, Sometimes authentic gets you killed. Actually, it always does. Didn't get him killed. It didn't. That fucker. That fucker died a natural death, as far as we know. Yes, he was literally a fossil. He was literally like a window into a a a forgotten time. He was well into his eighties. Yes, Mm -hmm. none of us like we. We lived a long life. We watched black and white movies and Mm -hmm. news film from that time. We have no fucking clue what Mm -hmm. it was like to live back then. Mm -mm. But here's this guy that's a link to all of that. Yeah, it was so weird for the longest time. It's like. How is he still alive? Right. Oh, and we'll, oh, we we tried to kill him many, 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 many oh, we times. We are going to get to that <laughs> yeah. in just a hot second. Which is, it's, you can ask the question: How is he still alive mm-hmm. in multiple ways? But 
the thing that I find interesting, when I read that about, like, you know, a lot of his policies were popular so with the working class, I was like, okay, let me think. Who did I hear from in South Florida who were saying, oh, he's a monster, he's a monster? I'm like, middle and upper class people. Like, people who are doing okay financially. Also, yeah, also people who have a better sense to control the narrative as well. Have a better access to control the narrative. Well, and also, not for nothing, but people who were a little more, by the time I was growing up, who were more removed from Cuba, sure. right? They, they were second generation, they were first born generation. In, they were born in Florida. Yes. For the most part, yes. Yeah. I uh, A lot of the people I knew who were Cuban-American were Cuban-American. They had sure. been born, they were born as U.S. citizens. Right. So, they had their parents' narrative of what happened and why they left Cuba. And if ostensibly if those parents were upper class, you know, then that's I've learned a lot about Castro that I did not know. And just now you mean? Yes. Oh, okay. Very I mean, good. you know, I mean, I grew up during the Cold War. Uh-huh. You know, during, <laughs> during the end of the the end of the Cold War is mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. Mhm. Um yeah, I didn't know these things about Castro. It's, uh, who knows? I find it, I just find it so... It's complex. It is, it is fraught is what it is. Yeah. Because like I said... It, it complex is too hard for many people. It just is for many people to handle. It is. It's like, this guy's a communist, hate him. Okay. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. This guy's uh, a capitalist, mm-hmm. love him. Okay. Well, I remember watching that Michael Moore documentary where he went to the different countries he, to... He went, and he went to Cuba. He went to Cuba for healthcare, yes. right? And I remember watching that and being like, oh, come on, mm-hmm. Michael Moore. You can't. I was like, look, I grew up in South Florida. There is no way I'm going to go saying, yes, we should all go to Cuba for our health care because Castro's a monster and blah, blah, blah. And now thinking about it, I'm like, ooh, was I kind of, have we all been brainwashed about this a little bit? Well, I mean, through or that we saw. Or just the narrative was controlled in such a way. That's bo- and, and he's trying to make up his own narrative, too. You know, don't forget. Mm-hmm. You know, so no, no, no. I, I fully agree with that. But it's and also a it's, large. But it's not the narrative that most people are. But gonna... a massive part of the stuff that happened to Cuba economically in this time was because of the sanctions of the mm-hmm. United States oh, it's, government. It's directly because of us. The the yeah. United States that's, that's undeniable is largely has a large portion of responsibility in any suffering of the Cuban people since the Cuban Revolution. I think like all the responsibility. So it's interesting that the narrative is Castro was the problem. And I'm not saying, again, not saying, I cannot say that Castro was a good guy. Of course. Well, I'm... It's just, like, my mind got a little bit blown looking into this. It was just... And don't forget either that the trade embargo that we have on them is imposed on all other countries in the world because it's not like all of a sudden some country like Finland's going to go, hey, we're going to trade with Cuba. Right. Because guess, it, cause guess what the United mm-hmm. States is going to do? Like, no, you don't. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the, it's not that we enforce the embargo, again, by the way. Right. Mm-hmm. It got lifted for, what, two years, three years? And then it happened again. Jeez. Um, so that affects the rest of the world, too. Yes, What yes. we do affects the rest of the world always well, so we essentially isolated cuba from yes, the rest of the world on purpose single-handedly yeah yeah that's undeniable oh <sighs> so well, <laughs> the reasons for it 
mm-hmm. or the reasons given or the real reasons, who the fuck knows. The reality is we cut Cuba off from the rest <coughs> of the world <coughs> on purpose. <clears throat> well, we have um, a lot more. Well, not a, a lot more. We only got, we're on the last page, but we have some... Uh, some more stuff to learn about the United States from declassified documents. So as the new regime continued to mess with the United States imperialist stamp on the island, the semi-friendly relations between the two countries rapidly began to deteriorate. Of course, it didn't help that the new government, regardless of its own label, was functionally communist, socialist, dictatorial, you know, essentially, Uh, which was what the war the States was already waging against the USSR was ostensibly about. The U.S. started squeezing Cuba by instituting trade restrictions. When it cut off oil to Cuba, Cuba turned to a new friend, the USSR, the Soviet Union, and the United States sworn enemy at the time. I feel like like if you were making this a play, it'd be Mm -hmm. like, enter. The USSR. USSR. Yes. Uh, You see the flag coming in. (laughs) Behind the scenes, uh, things were becoming downright hostile towards Castro and the U.S. government using one of its favorite tools, the CIA. It's a good one. In early 1960, President Eisenhower authorized the CIA to start training Cuban refugees in the United States as a guerrilla army to eventually go back to Cuba to stage a coup against Castro. On the more visible side of things, on October 19th, 1960, the U.S. cut off all trade with Cuba, except for food and medicine, starting the longest modern trade embargo in world history. As the relationship between Cuba and the U.S. completely collapsed, It led to some of the biggest diplomacy crises of the United States in the 1960s, and that is a decade with a shit ton of political and uh, diplomacy crises. The first was the Bay of Pigs invasion, when those CIA-trained refugees were deployed to Cuba to try to stage a coup. Yep. In January 1961, days after his inauguration, President John F. Kennedy was briefed on the plan, which he authorized. Okay, go ahead, proceed. Let's green light that one. Let's keep going. Let's let's start there. Yep. (laughs) Now, Castro's regime had a giant heads up from multiple loose lips and the KGB. Yeah. Uh, So when, (laughs) while the invasion of- Fucking disaster. In April 1961 (laughs) did lead to plenty of casualties and injuries- what it did not lead to was any version of overthrowing <laughs> Castro's government. All it led to was dead people. And making Kennedy look like a big old fucking loser within a few months yeah. of his presidency. And it's like, way to fight those commies, John. Yep. <laughs> you know he was fucking hearing that. You know? <laughs> <coughs> Which was... Way to fight those commies, commie. See, we knew he was a commie. Right. Like, if Fox News existed... Can you imagine yeah. if Fox News existed in the 1960s? Well, David, he was a Holy Catholic, shit. just like Castro. Yeah, that's right. He was bound to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also made Castro and the Cuban people be like, fuck you, U.S. <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
So despite this abject failure of a mission, Kennedy did not release the pressure on Cuba. It probably just made him pissed at yeah. at Cuba yeah, or exactly. Castro. It's like, do, you, do you realize the fucking jokes that I, I have to listen to? Right. So on to, uh, have, see if you've ever heard of this. On November 30, 31st, huh? November 30th, 1961, he authorized... Operation Mongoose. Yes, I, yes. You have you? Yes. I had never heard of this. Yeah. So headquartered in Miami, the operation was led by a U.S. Air Force general and a CIA operative. This is what leads to the discovery of... The mission's objective yeah. was to depose Castro and install, quote, a new government with which the United States can live in peace, end quote. Assassinating Castro was at the top of their list of options... <laughs> I wish to accomplish this end. The mission pursued many avenues for this, including enlisting the mob to put a hit out on Castro. Well, I mean, that's something they're good at. So you want to hire the best. They literally went to the Chicago mob and said, uh, if you get this done, we'll leave you alone. That's exactly what they said. We'll give you prostitution. We'll give you gambling. Whatever, Don't worry. Whatever you want. Not this, a bad, not a bad, tra- not a bad okay. trade off. This Entire, well, well mean, for the mob, yeah, it's a great deal. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, but I, I'm I'm surprised that, actually, well, maybe it's a different time. I'm surprised they were savvy enough to go like, who is the best in the United States at killing people covertly? Right. The mob. Not the CIA. The mob. No, the mob. <laughs> They're really good at it. They 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 rack up like dozens of bodies a month, and we never Damn. and no, nobody ever goes on trial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. so. Um, this other, is, yeah, this is fucking crazy. Other sub-missions included literal acts of terrorism oh, yeah. against Cuba. Yeah. Um, and various same parts sh- of the Cuban with, industry to disrupt the economy. I mean, really, the same shit with Hitler. Hitler survived, like, 50 assassination sure, attempts. Yeah. Like, he did. Like, mm-hmm. so, uh, like, half of them from his own people. So. And then he, uh, killed himself in a bunker after yeah, failing miserably. Just so, after, yeah. Castro, because he had issues. Castro sure did better than Hitler, didn't he? In terms of well, that's as, not so. But no, no, no. What I mean is, for himself, he did much better than Hitler did for himself. Every human has done better than Hitler. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's fair. <coughs> <coughs> so the entire operation. All, all the humans alive since Hitler. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's some people behind Hitler that are like, like you know, uh, Genghis Khan. He's like, he's like, yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, right. Like Hitler's like nothing compared to me. <laughs> so Operation Mongoose was supposed to culminate in October of 1962 with Castro gone, like one way or the other, and his regime overthrown. This time, just so happened, or not just so happened, to coincide with a little thing known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, the U.S. had constructed nuclear missiles in Italy and Turkey. Turkey happens to be very close to the Soviet Union. Yes, it does. Um, they found out about said missiles, and they're like, um, hey, Cuba, we're going to put together some missiles 90 like, uh, miles away from the United States, uh, okay? We're bringing you up from the farm league. Yes. Like, we're, we're bringing you into the majors. Batter up. <laughs> You, You've been promoted. You are extremely close <laughs> to the United States, yeah. so we're going to go ahead and put some missiles together. And yeah, of course, the U.S. caught wind of this and then got photographic evidence yes, of this. Um, and for about a month, 
literally the entire world stood on the brink of nuclear annihilation. And this alarming escalation put Operation Mongoose on the back burner, though various terrorist acts were still committed by the United States inside Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, that's not During the standoff. Yeah. Because they're like, no, nobody's, nobody's going to fucking pay attention to that. Yeah. Like, everybody's paying attention to it. Is the world going to end tomorrow? Yeah, and it almost did. Jesus it could have at any hot second. It really could have. It, it really, really could have. So the tense standoff on the missile crisis eventually ended in a, an agreement that the USSR would dismantle the missiles in Cuba, get them back to the Soviet Union, while the U.S. would publicly declare that they would not invade Cuba. Non-publicly, the U.S. also agreed to get rid of their missiles in Turkey. As the United States and Cuba engaged in these alarming exchanges in the early 60s, plenty of Cuban residents felt they were seeing the writing on the wall of what life would be like under Castro for the foreseeable future. By 1960s, these... Foreseeable being a massive understatement. Yeah. (laughs) By 1960, these fears and anticipations resulted in the beginning of one of the most significant and long-lasting human migration patterns in North America in modern history. And that is part one of the Marielle Boatlift. Oh, yeah. Yes, I know. Oh, yeah, I, that's I, I was, what we were talking try, about, right? Like, that in mind what was the, What's the topic? I feel like this is really important background. Of course on it is. Because because without without this, the Marielle Boatlift never happens. Mm-hmm. Without this, our entire American culture looks 10,000 times yeah. different. The, through through gener- Miami, through, South through, Florida uh, looks nothing like it does through now. generations as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, every mm-hmm. generation had some. I mean, <clears throat> even our generation to a degree had some relationship to Cuba because we saw Castro finally die, and for like a year or two, like three years, because yeah, he died under a, when Obama, I think, was still president. Oh goodness, jeez, whatever, he's oh. dead. <laughs> he is dead, <clears throat> and we ended the embargo for like a year or two. Yes, yes, we did, but I don't. Uh, I uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not remembering. Let's see. He died in November 2016. Okay, so yeah, okay. That, I thought it was 15 or 16. So it was Obama, yeah. but just just barely. And I don't know if did Obama end it or did uh, Trump end the embargo. It had to have been no. It had to have been Obama. And Why then, and it then wasn't Trump just it. it wasn't just during his. Just because of his death, right? I think that was part of our, or No, 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 no. Here's what it was. Okay. We had ended that embargo a couple years earlier. Okay, it was earlier. Like in 13 that. or 14. <coughs> and then he died, and then it was kind of like, well, there's this, there's the, his son took over. No, his, it was Raul. Oh, his brother. His brother. Mm-hmm. And they were like, eh. So, yeah. I think it was Raul. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doubting myself. One of the brothers. He had a brother. From, well, from, the from, only... the, from the same mother, and he took over. Oh, he's a retired Cuban politician. There you go. So he's, oh, he's... he retired in 21. Well, who the fuck is the... I don't know. Billy. It's, Bill, Bill, it's, it's, Billy, it's Billy Castro. It's Billy Castro now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, Siri. Oh, man. Who is the uh... president of Cuba? Oh, Miguel Diaz-Canel. Okay. 
Well, you can fit that into the you can, you can fit that into the research that you haven't done he yet. He is the first non-caster leader of Cuba since the revolution. I was gonna say I don't uh, Diaz. Who <laughs> was wow. that his last name? Uh, Diaz Canal. Yeah, Diaz Canal. Uh, he was born in April of 1960. He was uh, born into like, this exact, like, right like literally right after. Oh, that's so interesting. So I will have to a, include that. He's a fairly young world leader. He's only 63. Right. 62. As opposed to like the 90,000 year old men, <laughs> yeah. white men leading this but, uh, fucking world. That was, uh, man. I mean... Say what you want about the boomers. There's a lot to say. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot to, to say. say. But they grew up in much more of a fucking frantic time than we have. I mean, they really did. It, it, I mean, and, yeah. so, and some of them had to go off and fight in fucking Vietnam and die. Yeah. Like, just a couple years after this shit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. They, they've got a... They've got a, <coughs> a one-up as far as uh, the tension in the world. That is for damn sure. <coughs> yes. We, we've never dealt with a nuclear standoff, which is exactly what the fuck was going on. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, like, the collective, like, deep, like, the collective, like... Exhale. Mm-hmm. That the whole world took. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know... Well, God knows what other countries were doing to get ready for it. Who knows, exactly. And every country, you know, had their own plan. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, who knows who that plan involved and who it didn't involve and... Mm-hmm. It wouldn't. I mean, we could literally be li- be living in the Fallout Four video game that I have, right? If fucking mm-hmm. shit had gone like a different, mm-hmm. if you just moved something like, if a decision like five decisions away from that had changed, who, who the fuck knows? <coughs> it's scary to think about. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was scary as fuck to live through. So I imagine JFK himself was probably pretty scared. Although he, he, was didn't, he didn't know he was going to die a year later anyway. <clears throat> no, but. he didn't know he was going to get shot in the head. Yeah. <laughs> or did he? Who knows? Oh, God. He had so many medical problems, he just thought that he was going to, I think, die naturally. Wow. But yeah. anyway. But that was that was a fascinating... I know that it was a big departure because it's all history, socio-political, economic yeah. history. But um, I feel like it really sets up the, the whole background. This is just a... It's a nuanced topic. It just is. Clearly, the United States did a lot of fucked up shit. That is for sure. And it did, I'm it not. Did, it didn't help. That's for damn sure. I'm sorry, but choosing to assassinate a world leader because you don't like how they're treating your country's business is right. fucked up. Yeah. So, and it's not as cut and dried as like, oh, Castro was evil. Some no, of the stuff not. he instituted actually helped a lot of people. I mean, up until we did this uh, episode, mm-hmm. like, that's Castro's evil. That's just in my mind. Me too! I grew up, like I said, no. I, in Miami, there were pots and pans in the street when he died. Mm-hmm. Like, literally. It's it's weird hit, you know, to be history, confronted with it's a, it's a, other it's a, options. It's a modern example of history is written by the winners. You know? I mean, it is. History is written by the winners, and history is written by the people the, who, who have access well, to you. The winners control the narrative, and that's yeah, that's all you But you know need. what? Castro didn't lose. Uh, I mean, he didn't necessarily win either. So mm, he was controlled. <clears throat> that's that's, for that, sure. that's. I mean, that's a whole nuanced topic all in itself. Man. So yeah. God, we that, suck. The, well, the, I mean, the fact that all of the this shit. Sucks. Well, I mean, the fact that politics 
just in its nature is complicated. It is. Like, nothing is 100% this or it, it 50% is. that. It really, really is. It's nuanced. But I do feel that what's not nuanced is being like, no, we want to keep exploiting this country, therefore we're going to kill this person. That's not nuanced. Well, that decision is not. But, but so many things lead to those decisions, too. I mean, there's, you know... Mostly, mostly greed. Uh, let's be honest. But, you know, I mean, mostly capitalism, and right. that's that's which another greed, area where it's like, when I was growing up in Miami, I was indoctrinated in capitalism. So it's like now to be an anti-capitalist, and then to be like, oh yeah, Castro is anti-capitalist too. I mean, I do not support a dictatorship. However, did you get your Che Guevara shirt yet, Rachel? Like I can, I can see somebody on like a like a one star review. You know, and then and then the other side of it, right? Yeah, uh, good thing I don't read them anymore. I can't remember the last time I read one. Yeah. It's been a while. The other side of it is like, because and I was also thinking like, oh yeah, but they kill you know like these uh, Guevara and Castro, they killed people to like try and do this these political maneuvers and everything. And I'm like, yeah, but if you really believe that your country was politically corrupt, and in this case, there's facts to back that up. Well, here's what it is. It's it's factions of armed people making fucking bad decisions. Well... Or good decisions, depending on your fucking point of view. That's the I problem. Mean, that's, yeah. that's the problem. It's like... If if you if you thought genuinely, like my my people, my my the citizens of my country, especially the poor, the working class, you know, are suffering mm. because of our government, which is corrupt. <laughs> which oh my god, I just described the United States. <laughs> you know, you can see someone saying, it is in. Everyone it is in the people's best interest that these people be ousted by any means necessary. Yeah. Well, we saw that happen two we years ago. We saw people try we, to we do that. We saw that happen two mm-hmm. years ago, but the whole problem with that was completely based on a lie. It was God. based on something that wasn't real. So It was like, an it's insurrection like, it's of like, the people who supported the government to it, begin it, with. Right, which is exactly. Bullshit. Which they were trying to keep the current government. <clears throat> anyway. But it's like, if you get that energy the next time for something we actually need, you know, maybe it'll come in handy, but not not on that one. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, this, uh, this whole fucking period of history is just too Wild, complex for, for any one-hour podcast, two-parter, <coughs> whatever. You could do a 787-parter. On the 1960s, and it probably still wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. Like, you still hadn't covered everything. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's just... <clears throat> mm-hmm. that's, that's how history is. But especially is. this part of time. Because in uh-huh. this part of history, mm-hmm. labor, um, uprising, mm-hmm. women... Uh, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, black people... All sorts of people were mm-hmm. trying to, for the first time, collectively, like, attain power. Mm-hmm. Which was something on... And they, this was happening all over the world. Sure. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the world had not seen before. Mm-hmm. And 
So I, I think the, the problem is, especially now, we're all a bunch of people with only historical artifacts to look back on to try and judge it. Or just blips. Or just headlines. Yeah. You know? At, at worst, right? But no. at best... I mean, that's, why, that's why a headline is so strong. We don't have time enough to fucking read 50 different articles a day. So, you, you know... At best, we have incomplete records, right? right? Yeah. So... We don't... We don't... Nobody... Nobody... Very few people, including mm-hmm. ourselves... Mm-hmm have a nuanced take about certain events in history because we just don't know enough. Mm-hmm. You know? And and so to create a, a definitive judgment call on any of these events is really hard to do. And... It's shitty all around and people are going to die as a result of it. People did die as a result of it. Right. And... But this is just... I think this kind of blew my mind because of the environment I grew up in. Sure. It's a complete... To me, it's just kind of interesting. To you, it's a cultural change. It, it very much is. And yeah. to, especially as a white, non-Hispanic person, I don't have skin in the game right now, yeah. of what happened. I don't it's, have it's ancestors. Like, <laughs> I don't have it's like grandparents. A, it's like who... if a bunch of Cubans were arguing how great he was and you wanted to say something, it'd be like that episode of uh, Real Housewives. They're like, get in there and say something. Oh, like, Matt. Like, nope. <laughs> I'm not going to tell these. Okay. (laughs) Everyone needs to watch Homework Assignment, Real Housewives of Potomac, Season 3, Episode 8, Keep Your Eye on Matt. Yes. It is one of the best moments in The Real Housewives. It is possibly one of the (laughs) smartest decisions in history caught on film. Get in there, Matt. He stands up slightly and then he shakes his head and No, he stands up to be like, what did you say? And like, get it. And he's like, no. Nope. So, (laughs) That's exactly right. It's it's when it's it, I, I I am not qualified to this. This is not the story of my people. I it, I am not. I should say on the Cuban it is the, side. I was gonna say it is the story of your people. I can cast judgment on the story of my people, the United States. This yeah. was some bullshit we yeah. tried yeah. and tried uh, succeeded at. Well, yeah. no, what the did we... The embargo part. The embargo, yes, yeah. but we didn't kill Castro. That's true. That, that dude, yeah. that's, I mean, apparently it sounds like we tried our damnedest Yeah, we tried to... a lot. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We tried... And this is, that was just we, we tr- the first we tried, two years. <laughs> we tried dozens of times, and that's like a conservative estimate. <laughs> I bet it went on in perpetuity. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Constantly Until he was like that. 85, and then it was like, ah, he'll choke on a fucking potato Jeez. or something. Oh, well, a lot of people thought he was dead before he was dead. That's too. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man. So next week. <laughs> we will get we'll into the actual burial boat the actual, what Domingo Alfonso called, disaster. So is there a title for this first part? Sure. Or? Mm-hmm. There you go. So. That was the Mariel Boatlift, part one. La Revoluciones. Las... Las Revoluciones. Meaning the revolutionaries. Well, I, I figured that much. <laughs> I'm just not very good at saying things. <laughs> and that was another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week. <laughs>